The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Hey, we are super excited to be introducing some fresh new formats to the mix here on Spark Podcast. So our new hot take segment, which we just launched last week, it tackles hot topics and conversation with expert guides from the Spark Brain Trust. And today we are sharing a fun new episode format we're calling Spark Stories, where we spotlight the experience of one person and explore how they built a living and a life that honors, celebrates, and centers the parts of themselves that truly make them and their work come alive, that sparks what they do and who they are. And today, we're going to start with the spotlight on the story of someone our listeners have come to know and appreciate, but you likely didn't know about the stories and experiences that got him where he is. I'm talking about Spark Brain Trust member, Charlie Gilkey. Now, you may know Charlie's work. He runs a company called Productive Flourishing, which is all about helping people get things out of their head and figuring out how to actually take the actions to produce the things that they so deeply want to make real in the world, which as a maker myself is super valuable. His work has resonated so profoundly with me, which is why he's a part of the Spark Brain Trust. But Charlie also has a really powerful background and backstory. He came out of the military where the decisions he was making, the systems and processes that he was building, the advising and mentoring, coaching and leading that he was doing very often had extraordinary stakes, life and death stakes. If he chose wrong, lives were at risk in a part of the world that was very far from where he grew up and what he knew. Charlie has since written a fantastic book called Start Finishing, which is all about his methodology. And we sat down to dive into Charlie's Spartan story. I wanted to understand what were his deeper impulses for the things that he's done and what have been the through lines. And of course, along the way, he shares his own Sparkotype profile. And we dive into how that has informed the different types of work he said yes and no to, the way that he stepped into them, and what he's learned along the way about how he makes decisions better that align with what he wants to create in the world. Really excited to share this Spark story featuring my dear friend, Charlie Gilkey. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Spark. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. We go back, you know, I was just thinking about this. 2008, 2009? Yeah, my first South by. Right. So we met at a house party, <laughs> which neither of us normally would go to a house party. No. In South Austin yep. um, at this giant event and something clicked and it's been just an amazing thing journey for both of us but i want to talk to you about a whole bunch of different things i want to talk to you explore the spark types and how they show up in your work and also a lot of the team stuff that you've been doing but um zooming the lens out a little bit and stepping back in time even before i knew you uh, actually i think when we first met you were probably still in reserve for army national guard but you spent some time serving the country um in a pretty major way yeah, so I joined the Army National Guard in 2002, and then we very shortly after that got mobilized to go to Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so I spent federalized. Um, my job there started as leading tactical convoys throughout Kuwait and Iraq, and then I got promoted to battalion headquarters, which is largely looking at all the different convoy operations, making sure that they were going where they needed to, making the plans for them. And then when I got back stateside, um, I used a lot of what I learned over there to design joint force training scenarios that basically took troops through what it was like to lead a convoy in the ambiguous situation that was Operation Iraqi Freedom and Afghanistan. Right. So then you take all those skills. Mm -hmm. And also you have this kind of fascinating philosopher king meets operational, tactical systems thinking, practical on the ground business. Like, are you aware of the fact that you don't normally find those two lenses in one person? Yeah, it's, um, I thought everybody else was like me, like most people do, like everybody's like me. And then I was like, wait a second, no, that's kind of a unique combination. Yeah, so you come back and then you're effectively saying, all right, like, what do I do? How do I transition? And where do I want, where do I want to redeploy mm -hmm. this mindset, the skill set? And you land in the world of effectively entrepreneurship and creativity. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever actually asked you how that happened. Completely accidentally, actually. Um, so the real challenge point that I had is when I came back from Iraq, I was still pursuing my PhD in philosophy. And so I was simultaneously doing all that logistics and training stuff in the PhD. And I was like, ah, I don't understand why it's so easy for me to do this stuff over here with the convoy ops and all that sort of stuff. But this 5,000 word essay is kicking my butt. That does not make sense, it doesn't compute. And so what I realized is like, oh, after a lot of thinking, I was like, I've never been trained on how to do this. I'm not in a context, academia, that's really good at giving the, the structure around doing that. And so what I started doing is like, okay, this is a learning gap, right? So I'm gonna learn how to do it, and then by the way, I'm going to share what I'm doing. Because I realized all of my peers, Every graduate student I was with had this problem. Every faculty member I had is like, why are we all with, with this problem? We're not talking about it. So that became what later became productive flourishing. And then along the way, a lot of entrepreneurs, um, business leaders like, hey, you're really good at planning and strategic thinking and systems thinking. Like, can you help me with my business? And I was like, no, nah, that's not really what I do. 
right? I'm, a, I'm this over here. And then they kept delightfully pestering me enough. They was like, okay, okay, we'll give it a shot. We'll make some boundaries around it. And in a real way, I've been doing it, like giving it a shot for the last 13 years. Yeah. You mentioned productive flourishing. Mm-hmm. What is productive flourishing? Yeah, so productive flourishing is a community and a website that really helps creative change makers finish what matters most. So you can think of it as personal productivity, but I don't like that as much because personal productivity can be really over granular. I'm really about, hey, how are you taking these ideas? How are you taking these visions? How are you taking this purpose and making something happen in the world that helps you thrive, that helps your community thrive and helps the world thrive? Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's funny because I think there's a tendency to sort of like lump people. Like we, we like to put people in buckets. Mm-hmm. And like the, the broadest possible bucket, you know, like people put you in in terms of like what you like offer through productive flourishing is productivity, but it's not really what you do. It's like, un, it's more of a, yeah, it, it's, it's more about unlocking something internal yeah. <laughs> that allows people to get the thing in their head out into the world and actually like make it real. One of the things I've come to learn about you over the years also, which honestly makes me a little bit envious, is you think in systems and processes, and we've talked about this, in ways that make me want to cry. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, there's something about your wiring that just goes there. Do you feel like, and it feels like a joyful pursuit to you, whereas I kind of like, I've become skilled at it, but the minute I can have somebody else do it, <laughs> yeah. I will. Yeah. Do you have any sense for um, when that starts showing up in your life? Mm. I would say I could go back at least until I was 16, right? Um, so I ended up having an undergraduate in philosophy, as you know. And one of the reasons I love philosophy, I didn't have a language for it at the time, but I do now, is like, you get to solve these really interesting puzzles and you're not constrained to one particular field, right? And so being able to think about how ideas relate, how assumptions relate, how worldviews relate, and what that makes a difference from the ethical perspective, from the knowledge perspective, it's always been what I've been doing. And so really, it's really one of those things where I can see two things happening especially if I know they're actually in a system and it just starts going like, okay, why does it work that way? What happens when we change this piece and make that happen, right? And really understanding those dynamics. Sometimes it can be really frustrating because you have complex systems and you make a change here and have some other change. You have no idea what happened, but it's always, at least since I was 16 or so, always been there. Yeah. I would be curious if you really like thought back, I'm fascinated when, when these impulses start to show up for people. Mm-hmm. Like I'd, I'd be curious if I was like, okay, if you think when you were six years old, could you find this in your life? And what if, I think a lot of times we don't think back, like we think back to the point where we're sort of like becoming adults mm-hmm. and a little bit more foreign. But a lot of times when we think about like the simplest expression of the impulse, we can see it as, a, I mean, like I know like, like my sparkotype is a maker scientist, like, mm-hmm. and I can see the impulse underneath that showing up literally from the time that I am consciously aware of anything in my life. Let's talk about you. You know, like, this is what you've been doing in the world. Um, you also took your whole philosophy and built it into a book, Start Finishing, which is a fabulous piece of work, by the way. Um, and you're focusing a lot on developing your own team right now, developing your own company, mm-hmm. potentially companies. Mm-hmm. And you advise a lot of different founders, leaders, and organizations right now also. Mm-hmm. Your interaction with the spark types. So we've been playing with these ideas for a long time. You've seen me evolve them mm-hmm. through iteration, 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 to a point where you know, like, feel like we have a body of work that was in some way valuable. I'm curious to know how the work has landed with you, just on a, both on two levels. One, personally, mm-hmm. and also 
it, within your own organization, and then because you work with so many other leaders and teams. Um, so maybe on three different levels. I'm curious just what your lens is. Yeah, um, I'll start with the team. I'll go team, personal, and then across businesses, probably easiest way. One of my knacks as a team builder is that I can always find those unique things that make people tick and make sure that we align their work and jobs to match that and then build a team around that. So if you look at our team at PF, which is currently eight full-time people, right? It's really me trying to figure out like, okay, Steve is great at these things. That's what lights him up. Jess is great at these things, Corey, and really putting that system together so that it works. And no one, when we do this right as leaders, no one feels like they're actually working, right? Um, But work is happening. Um, And that's, I think, the ideal, and that's what I try to build. And so that's why we have really great retention. People come and don't leave, right? So on and so forth, because they show up and like, why would I do anything else, right? Personally, my wife Angela asked me, I think it was last weekend, she was like, so what is like the best version of Charlie? And I was like, that's a really broad question. And my response was, well, I think Sparkotype model data really well, advisor scientists, right? I really like helping people, really like showing people these parts of themselves that they sometimes don't see. And then figuring, helping them figure out how to um, deploy that, and you know, to use the military metaphor. Um, but there's also this very intense curiosity of you know figuring things out. And so, to your question about going back in earlier days, I think advisor came later. Scientist has always been there. Like I can go back where I was four or five, and I used to drive my dad crazy. I'd pick up a tool, like, what, what do you do with this? Why does it work? Why do you use this one versus that one? And he's like, ah, right, to put it down, right. And so that's always been there that intense curiosity, but I think figuring out that I could apply it to help other people, that came with maturity. That's so fascinating, because one of the things, you know, people often ask about, like, you know, the, the, the primary and the shadow and the relationships and stuff like that, and one of the things that, that often comes up is, like, people are like, well, do these change over time? And what I've been more convinced of, as, as we see more data and have more conversations and st- sort of study more use cases, is that it appears that it's less that they evolve over time, but some just show up a lot earlier, and then you don't have the life experiences, the work experiences. You don't have the experiences to, to tease out this other preference or this other impulse until a little bit later in life. So on the advisor side, which is particularly interesting to me, so the scientist gets rewarded early mm-hmm. in life. Early. So, so there's plenty of opportunity to show up. The advisor, for a lot of people, if you try and express it too early, it gets stomped on because mm-hmm. people are like, don't tell me what to do. Like you're eight years old, you know, or you're 12 years old or you're, and so, so a lot of times people sort of like, they play with it because the impulse is there and it's not received well. Yeah. So they back away from it until you reach a point in your life or your career, your relationships where you kind of feel like you've either earned the right or somehow you have the, like the accumulated knowledge experience where you can step into it more comfortably and then people respond differently. I'm curious whether that's yeah. Any part of your story? I think that's true. I think there's a very contextual element, too. I grew up poor, black, and in the South, yeah. right? And so there are only so many contexts in which um, that advisor sort of prototype could show up between, you know, priest or, between priests and ministers, between teachers. Like, there's a limited range of things. And actually, I went to undergrad, and one of the things I was going to do is be a teacher. So it was there, but I didn't grow up around coaches and consultants and advisors, and, you know, that's not wasn't my lived reality. So it wasn't a community outlet there. It was only until later that I came and was like, wait a second, there's this whole broad range of ways you can be an advisor. I didn't use that language, but you can help people doing this. And then still, so much of my work is that people coming to me, 
right? So, you know, I'm, I'm not great at proactive marketing. I'm not out there trying to get a bunch of business. I'm just like, stuff just comes to me. And I'm like, okay, I can, I think I can help. And I've learned to not, this has been a huge learning skill is when someone comes and says, can you help? If there's a place where I don't see where I could cause legitimate harm, to not question whether I am have the expertise or whether I have it. It's like they're coming to me asking me for help. So how about I assume that they see something in me that they need and I can at least go as far as I can go. Um, and then be like, you know what? We've reached a point. I'm not the best at that, right? You need to go talk to X, Y, and Z. So that's been, as I've aged, getting more and more comfortable when someone says, hey, can you come help with this? And I'm like, sure, let's figure it out together. As opposed to, ah, I don't do that. I've never done that before. Man, if I spent most of my life telling people what I haven't done before, I wouldn't have done anything. Right. But, I mean, to a certain extent, like, I, I, I read that as it's the scientist reaching a level of competence that it's telling the advisor, I can help you figure it out. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's like it's, it's them playing with each other. It's that dance. There's something else that, that I know about you when, on, the, on the advisor side, because I've seen you do this with clients. Mm-hmm. And um, when we run, like, worked on projects together— one of the things that I've learned over time is that the highest level, the very often the most valuable people who are in some kind of advisory role, and we're using the advisor because that's the spark of type, but it doesn't mean you call yourself that right, or you have right. that title. It's mm-hmm. just it's the work that, that you do is that when you start to reach sort of like higher and higher levels of impact, it becomes less about actually telling anyone what to do, and it's, it's trust, safety, and understanding the appropriate questions to ask to elicit wisdom from the person that you're in a relationship with. I learned that in part from Michael Gervais, who's this fantastic performance psychologist, you know, and it was floating around and I deserved it, but he, he created a really great frame around it. Mm-hmm. And I've seen you I, literally evolve mm-hmm. to, to do that same thing where people come to you and they're like, tell me what to do. And you're like, I have some questions for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that. I, at this point in my career, I know that my value add as an advisor is not what I know. It's what I can ask and asking the right question in the right way at the right time. There's a lot of context there. Um, and just knowing the person, this person is coming to me, I just kind of have to feel into it and say, hmm, if I give them an, a direct or if I give them a direct question, they're going to rebel and push against it. They're not going to be able to see it. So I have to do this one obliquely versus another person who will never get the hint right on the oblique. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of, you know, seeing what people are coming to you with. And it's like, that's the question they're asking. There's either a question under that or they're asking that question because there's this other harder question that they don't have the courage or the ability to ask quite yet. So how do we start dancing with these right questions? A lot of times I don't know like what the answer is, and that's not the point. You know, to your point earlier, said um, I have gotten much more comfortable knowing that like I don't have to know all the answers, but I'm really good at figuring them out. Right. And so that's how it shows up most of the time. It's People say, I have a question for you. He's like, I probably don't have an answer, but I probably have a question. <laughs> um, and that starts the process. Yeah, so, and it's like together we can figure it out. So together we can figure it out. Yeah, I, lo- I love that interplay. Um, when you think about where you are right now, you run your own company. You have your own team, actually teams, mm-hmm. plural, within the company. That you advise people that run their own companies and teams. In the context of sort of like the broader scheme, I'm curious about the Charlie vision mm-hmm. right now. You know, Because I feel like, we as, as a culture are in this moment right now, mm-hmm. but I also feel like you as an individual are in a really interesting moment right now where you're sort of looking more expansively and holistically at like, okay, so, so we've done some really good work up until now, mm-hmm. but we're in this moment where there's a lot of visioning about like, 
what do I want this next season to look like? What's in your head around that? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I guess at this stage, I don't, I don't have a fine point to it, but I do want to make work work for everyone in the sense where when I look at how much of our lives we spend at work and how much it's not working for everyone, um, just really thinking about how do we build more inclusive workspaces? How do we not get people caught in systems and structures that are really harming them? How do we rebalance some of the equity and wealth in our society such that people feel more ownership and things like that? So really broader questions like that. Um, how do we rebuild teams? So my next, my next book is about building teams that, that focus on performance and belonging. And the belonging piece is the one where people are like, uh, do we really need to talk about that? I'm like, yes, we need to talk about, have you not learned over the last 20, <laughs> last, you know, 2020 in a year? So that's really what I'm out about doing. And why work is, um, you know, for me, and, and we have this conversation a lot, some people work means going to a job. Some people work means running their business. Some people you know, like work means having this great nonprofit. For some people, family is work. Whatever that is, I want people to think about that thing that they're spending most of their days doing and saying, how can this work for everyone, including myself, better? Um, and being intensely curious about that and understanding that as you change the way you work, you'll change yourself, which means you'll need to change the way you work. And it's just a constant evolution. There's no fixed state. And that's what gets me so excited and frustrated, right? Because people think they're going to some fixed state of themselves. And then they get there and they realize that self is still changing, yeah. right? So There's no there there. There's no there there. Um, and the freedom in that there's no there there. And there are no right answers. And there's no forever decisions. That's where we can come alive and really start to be able to embrace the world, not as it was, but as we want it to be. Mm, I love that. I feel like that's a great place for us to wrap also. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Charlie. I learned so much from him every time I sit down with him. I absolutely strongly recommend go check out his work, check out Productive Flourishing, his book Start Finishing, and his new app, Momentum. And we will see you back here on next week's episode of Sparked.